I speak to you this morning in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, today a very long journey comes to an end, as this morning we celebrate the final Sunday of the church calendar. Next week, the church year will begin anew with the first Sunday of Advent. So on this so aptly named Sunday next before Advent, we are presented with two very noteworthy passages. The first from the prophet Jeremiah, and the second from the Gospel according to St. John. So when we take a look at Jeremiah chapter 23, we have to remember the horrific event of the Babylonian exile, where the city of Jerusalem was completely laid to waste, and God's people were dispersed and taken off captive by the Babylonians. God used Babylon as an instrument of judgment against his people for breaking the covenant committing sins of idolatry, rebellion, and injustice against him. And I'm going to put this very articulately. This was very, very bad. (laughs) Jerusalem, literally, the city where God dwelt was completely laid to waste. It was destroyed. And the Babylonians were infamous for their brutality. And Jeremiah had gone to really great lengths to warn his people about this, about the impending doom But unfortunately, in his own day, with his own eyes, he saw the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile come to pass. So in spite of this perhaps complex idea, that is God's use of a foreign pagan nation as a means of justice, I'm sorry, a means of judgment on his people, what's important to see is that this move, this act of God is not the final move of the story. God says that he will judge his people. He will judge Israel. He will attend to them for their evil deeds. There's no escaping that. But he will remain faithful. He will remain faithful to his covenant, faithful to his people, and he will bring restoration. God says in Jeremiah, I will gather a remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Judah will be saved because I will raise up a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely in the land. The people will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. What's being said here is that the Israelites will no longer see their salvation as merely a deliverance out of Egyptian slavery and into the promised land, but now also their salvation will be seen as a bringing back, bringing back out of exile another journey of deliverance, a new exodus, if you will, back into the promised land again. You see, this was for Israel the the, the primary motif, the primary way of understanding their salvation, this great Old Testament story of the Exodus, where God raised up Moses, who led the people out of Egyptian slavery through the waters of the Red Sea and into the Promised Land. And God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai. And there he revealed his intentions for his people, his intentions for this covenant. And that is that they would be God's people living in God's land in freedom and experiencing God's blessing. 
But there were stipulations for this. And Israel demonstrated time and time again her infidelity. Her infidelity to God and her infidelity to God's covenant. And thus their lived reality was not always what God intended it to be. God's people and God's place in freedom experiencing his blessing. Their infidelity is what caused the horrors that Jeremiah experienced. So there, if we fast forward then from the days of Jeremiah into the first century, and we find the Jewish people then in an interesting state of existence, the Babylonian exile was over. Well, kind of. They had been brought back into the land, but that's about where it stops. Because this land, God's people were still under foreign rule. Pagan rule. The Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. And the the Jewish people had experienced so much persecution at the hands of these foreign rulers. Just read the intertestamental literature, and you'll get a good taste for the sufferings and the persecutions that the Jewish people had to endure. So there they were then, in the first century, and they were waiting, still waiting for Jeremiah and the other prophets and prophecies to be fulfilled. There they were, still waiting for that king who would reign and deal wisely and execute justice in the land. They were still waiting, still waiting for deliverance, still waiting for the new king, for the new prophet, the new prophet, that Moses himself, speak, Moses himself speaks of in Deuteronomy 18, where he says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. It is to him you shall listen. They're still waiting for God to move again, still waiting for this new exodus, the recapitulation, if you will, of the great Old Testament act of salvation in their midst, in their day, and in their context. So if you're a Jewish person then in the first century and you're occupying this religious space, if you have and you're inhabiting this worldview, and then you hear this story about the feeding of the 5,000, I'm pretty sure you're going to pick up on all the things that we don't pick up on in the 21st century. See, John and the other gospel writers are so intent on conveying this imagery. You have a man named Jesus who's healing the sick, he goes up on a mountain, he teaches the people, he miraculously feeds them with bread, and then, just after this episode, he walks on water. The mountain, Mount Sinai, teaching the giving of the law, feeding the people the manna, and walking on water with the Red Sea imagery. See, John really wanted his readers, his audience, to pick up on this. And they did. He says it explicitly. In response to this sign, in response to the feeding of the 5,000, what do the people say? They say, this is indeed the prophet. This is the one. The prophet who is to come into the world. And they try to take him by force and make him king. They were picking up on the hints. They saw in John 6 this salvific story of the exodus where God led his people through the leadership of Moses out of Egyptian slavery through the waters of the Red Sea. God instructed his people, fed them with the manna, the miraculous bread from heaven, and sustained them on their road of deliverance into the promised land. So what the Gospels do, 
one thing they do amongst many, is try to demonstrate this connection between Jesus and this great story. Particularly this connection between Jesus and Moses. Both are presented as great figures of deliverance. Both give the law. Moses with the old covenant law and then Jesus with the new covenant law. And both miraculously provide bread and sustenance for the people. But as so often happens, as so often occurs, the people who understand something, they they were picking up that Jesus was the prophet who was to come into the world. That was right. But they had no idea what it meant. They hadn't a clue. Yes, there would be a prophet like Moses. There would be a Davidic king. But he wouldn't be just like Moses, just like David. He would be exceedingly greater. They didn't understand that Jesus would do what Moses did, but he would do it on a cosmic level. It wasn't about politics. It wasn't about foreign rulers. It wasn't about defeating the Romans. It was far, far deeper than that. Jesus would lead the people out of a slavery far greater and much more dangerous than Egyptian slavery, Babylonian captivity, or Roman rule. This is the prophet who would lead his people out of the slavery to evil, the slavery to the malevolence and the sin that resides in the deepest part of your being if you only had the courage and honesty to look. This prophet would deliver his people from slavery And he would not only do that, but he would do so much more. He wouldn't just rescue the two of the original 12 tribes of Israel that remained, but he would restore Israel completely, symbolized in the 12 baskets of leftovers, in which all people from every ethnicity would be in Christ, brought into the fullness of what it means to be the people of God. This prophet will give food, yes, but not the type of food that Moses gave. The manna, which when you eat it, you get hungry again. No, this prophet will give the food and the drink that when you partake of it, you will never hunger or thirst again. This prophet won't merely part the sea like Moses did. He doesn't need to part it because he will walk on it. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is not merely one prophet amongst others. He's not one good prophet amongst many others. He's not one who just communicates somebody else's law. That's what prophets do. He doesn't just communicate somebody else's message or somebody else's word. Jesus is the very word of God. The one who was present with his father in the beginning. The word or the logos through whom all things were made. And the great message that John wants us to see in John 6, and also in his prologue in the first chapter, is that this same word of God, this same logos, that was present with the Father in the beginning, became flesh and dwelt among us in Jesus. So because of this, because Jesus is the very word of God incarnate, In our following after God, we need to imitate and embody what it is that Jesus did. 
That is the goal, that is the telos of God's work in our lives, to make us like his son. So in so doing, let us not miss the obvious here. What do we see in Jesus' ministry? What do we see in signs such as these? These miracles are not about putting on magic shows. No, they're about remarkable displays of mercy and compassion. This is what the God of the universe does. He doesn't do magic. He meets people's needs. In this case, he extends an unprecedented and lavish hospitality to 5,000 plus people who were just starving and wanted some food. He compassionately feeds them until they are completely satisfied. So my prayer for us is that we would be mindful of this, that we would embody this and find our place in this great story, this new exodus, wherein the God of the universe in his son is rescuing the world from slavery and leading us to the promised land. I think it's very fitting that we reflect on these things and that our readings point us to this on the final Sunday of the church year, the great culmination and ingathering of all things in Christ. So may we bear this good news. May we embody and bear this story in our beings and in our lives and extend then what we have received, extend what we have received out in the world, being reminded today and imitating Jesus in his actions the simple yet overwhelming power of compassion and hospitality. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.